gentlemen, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing a class act. All I want is to go back to New York, close the door, and be with my piano. Eddie, don't hide under the covers. You're stronger than you think. Take a risk. Follow the bend in the river. Get where you're going to be. Follow the wind in the valley. Over the hill to the sea. with me. No. But if you follow your star, Eddie, follow your star, you'll find home. You'll find words and music. I love them. And especially what happens when you put them together into songs and sing them large building, in a central part of town, in a dark room as part of a play, with a lot of people listening who have all paid a great deal to get in. Really? I had no idea. If you follow your star, follow your star, you'll find home, you'll <laughs> what can I tell you? This is what's on the plate, folks. We have to dig in. We have no choice. Pick up your fork and your knife, but first... <laughs> Before we eat, hey, how are we doing? How are you doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. That is my wish at the top of every episode of The Musical Man. Hey, here's a correction for you that relates to our episode on... Ah, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Zero Mustel is imitating poses from erotic pottery, not poetry. This is a reference to the film version of Forum. You know, I was talking about Zero Mustel still adopting all of those funny poses. Well, you don't lift poses from poetry, do you? No. I don't think I had the word poetry written down. I had the word pottery right there in front of me, and I said poetry, and when I got to the edit stage, I realized, oh no, I can't save it. I've made another Lulu. Casting ideas. Oh, we got an email from the one and only Harry. Harry provided his breakdown for... 
a revival of Forum and who he would choose to cast in said revival. How about this? Gavin Creel from Thoroughly Modern Millie and She Loves Me as Hero. Jefferson Mays from A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder as Hysterium. Faith Prince from Guys and Dolls. Bells are ringing and Gallivant TV VIP subject. Gallivant as Domina and Brandon Ori from Kinky Boots or Alex Brightman maybe from Beetlejuice as TBD. That was an open-ended question. Well, allow me to potentially fill in that blank. Some would say Brightman is too young to play Pseudolus, but I say why not? Nathan Lane, he wasn't that old, right? He was probably in his early 40s at the time. Ori, is that is that how you pronounce it? Brandon Ori? I, I do try my best. Ori reads like a moodier hero to me. Maybe he could bring a different energy to the part. Those are my fill-in-the-gap answers for you, Harry. Thank you for reaching out to me. I love emails. You, oh, as always, are free to email me whenever you want, musicalmanpod at gmail.com. But for now, sit back, relax, get ready to hear me complain a lot about this week's subject, a class act. Show me the show facts regarding a class act, you say? Unbiased facts? Ooh, ooh, a fact removed from all opinion? Yes, I can do that for you, but then you're gonna have to listen to me complain. All right, so just pick up the fork, pick up the knife, show me the show facts. All right. A class act was a 2001 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on March 11th, 2001 at the Ambassador Theater and ran for 105 performances. The book was written by Linda Klein and Lonnie Price, and music and lyrics are brought to us by Edward Ed Kleban. Incidental music by Todd Ellison, additional lyrics Brian Stein and Glenn Slater. The basis for this week's subject is the life and times of Edward Ed Kleban, the lyricist for A Chorus Line. Shortly after Ed died in December 1987, a reading of his will revealed the rights to his unpublished songs had been granted to Avery Corman and Wendy Wasserstein. It was Ed's wish to have these songs incorporated into a musical, but Corman and Wasserstein were unsuccessful in their efforts, and the rights eventually transferred to Linda Klein. Wikipedia describes Klein as Ed's, quote, longtime companion, quote. Linda vowed to collaborate with someone who was unfamiliar with Ed and would learn about him through his work, which led her to align with Lonnie Price. Lonnie Price is also the director of this original Broadway production of A Class Act. Price started out as an actor, appearing in The Survivor and the original production of Merrily We Roll Along, but... At this point, I would say he's best known as a director both on and off Broadway. Directing credits include Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill, Sunset Boulevard, the recent revival, Sweeney Todd Company, and most recently, Walking with Ghosts. Musical director and additional arrangements, well, uh, that's David Loud. Hello, David. Orchestrations, Larry Hockman. Choreographer, Marguerite Derricks. Scenic design, James Noon. Lighting design, Kevin Adams. Sound design, Acme Sound Partners. I remember you, Acme Sound Partners. ASP, hello again. Costume design, Carrie Robbins. Here's the original Broadway cast. Lonnie Price, okay? He's, he's the star. He's the co-writer, director, and the star. 
that should maybe raise a red flag or two, but we also have Randy Graff, Nancy Anderson, Broadway debut for Nancy Anderson. Congratulations, Nancy, David Hibbert, Jeff Blumenkrantz, Donna Bullock, Patrick Quinn, and Sarah Ramirez. Now, Price, Graff, Anderson, and Hibbert appeared in the original off-Broadway production of A Class Act, which ran for over a year at New York City Center. When the show made its transition to Broadway, those four went along with it, while their colleagues, Jonathan Freeman, Julia Murney, Ray Willis, and the one and only Carolee Carmelo were left behind. Those people did not go to Broadway. Can you believe it? They replaced Carolee Carmelo. Tony nods. All right, let's see what we have here. We have nominations for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Linda Klein and Lonnie Price, Best Original Score, Edward Kleban, Best Actress in a Musical, Randy Graff, and Best Orchestrations, Larry Hockman. Five nominations in total, zero awards, when all was said and done. Seems fair to me. Let's talk about the plot of a class act. The following summary is based on a reading of the original book by Linda Klein and Alani Price. Fair warning, there is a lot of editorializing baked into this summary, more so than usual, at least. Act 1, Scene 1, The Schubert Theater, 1988. On the bare stage of the Schubert Theater, Ed Kleban's dearest friends gather to honor his memory. Ed has recently died. Ed's ashes have been stored in the English Olivier Award he won for co-writing a chorus line. You boy! <laughs> As everyone dashes about to prepare for the memorial, a beam of light travels from the Olivier Award to the ghost of Ed Kleban, who is sitting in the front row of the house. As a reminder, the scene takes place in the Schubert Theater, but the show, a class act, was staged at the Ambassador Theater, so, like, uh, you know, don't get it twisted, don't get confused. Ed turns to the person next to him and begins to sing. You boy! <laughs> he launches into a whole routine as those who reside in the land of the living exchange thin banter. A character named Felicia spots a poster of Ed wearing a tie. Felicia says, oh, that's just too tragic. And another character, Lucy, responds by saying, so young. And Felicia responds by saying, Oh, well, yes, but I was talking about the tie. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> Everybody starts talking shit about Ed, which causes his ghost to become upset. Makes sense. We learn the memorial takes place on the night of a chorus line's 5,213th performance. Put that tidbit somewhere safe. <laughs> the tidbit. Put it somewhere safe. You never know when you might need it. As Lucy kicks off the testimonials, a second ghost appears next to Ed. The ghost of Sophie. Oh, Ed is not happy to see Sophie. Oh, let me tell you, not happy. In true Dickensian fashion, Sophie drags our hero into the past, so he can examine the more, shall we say, unseemly details of his biography. Act 1, Scene 2, Hillside Hospital, 1958. A younger version of Sophie visits a younger version of Ed, who recently checked into Hillside after suffering a breakdown. A lot of electroshock therapy at Hillside, not a pretty picture. Zap, zap! 
Sophie and Ed have been friends since grade school. Nobody knows Ed better than Sophie, which allows our hero to make a confession. He confesses to her, Sophie, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I want to write songs for musicals. Sophie and Ed kiss on the lips. Mwah! Act one, scene three, the Schubert Theater, 1988. We're back. Lehman Engel takes the stage to explain his role in Ed's life. For over 20 years, Lehman has been teaching a workshop for aspiring composers. To quote the book directly, Lehman says, uh, he says, No one in the workshop wanted to write musicals more than Ed, but at 24 he needed to make a living, and his talent helped him land a plum job as a producer at Columbia Records. We then cut to a moment at Columbia Records where Ed's boss, Mr. Lieberson, says, Cleveland, good work on the Polka for Lovers album. Ed says, thanks, Mr. Lieberson. Next, I'd really like to try something different. And Mr. Lieberson responds by saying, different? You got it. How about Cha-Cha for Lovers? Act 1, Scene 4, the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, 1966. Unsatisfied with his daytime gig, Ed finds solace in Lehman's workshop. The students appear one by one. Felicia, Mona, Lucy, Charlie, Bobby. These are the same people we met at the memorial. I just chose to name them now. Bobby performs the conclusion to his latest composition. He's at the piano. He's singing, let's fuck, but we'll call it mating. Let's fuck, but we'll call it bliss. Do ten unspeakable things to me, hard and often. Call that hey. Let's kiss. That's not the melody. It's on the Off-Broadway cast album if you want to hear the real melody. That's my melody. And Lehman responds to this performance by saying, and Helen Keller sings this, where? Ed does everything he can to avoid performing his own material, but Lehman says, no dice. It's been 13 weeks, kiddo. Time to shit or get off the pot. Ed performs Paris Through the Window, a piece from his long gestating musical, Gallery. Feedback is mixed, though Lehman insists Paris is a wonderfully crafted, truthful song, quote-unquote. The students discuss our hero behind his back. Lucy says, he's cute, and he's good, too. Felicia turns to Charlie and says, what do you think? Charlie says, he's so good I hope he has deep psychological problems. And then in the background, we see Ed, who screams, Oh my God, did anyone see my thermometer? And Charlie says, Bingo. (laughs) I don't actually find that moment funny. I just, (laughs) there it is. We segue back to the memorial where Bobby is speaking. Quote, Ed was such a nebbish. What did all the women see in him? Quote, Act 1, Scene 5, Ed's Apartment, 1966. Sophie discovers Ed has been sleeping with his classmate, Mona, and they break up. Ed's ghost is mortified. He doesn't want the people to see this. He doesn't want them to know (laughs) he was a fucking jerk. A sinister doctor from Hillside Hospital draws ever closer to our distraught hero. (laughs) I'm the doctor from Hillside Hospital. Zap, zap. Ed wards off his inner demons by writing a new song for the gallery musical. Lucy performs the song as Sophie packs her bags. Bye, Sophie. Act 1, scenes 6 and 7, both of which take place at Columbia Records, 1971. 
we find Lucy in the studio recording Ed's tune. She's going through a divorce and quite obviously has a thing for Ed, who does his best to seize the day. Ed says, how about coming over for dinner tonight? I make a splendid roast chicken. Oh boy. Lucy says, sounds good, but I like you too much to be on the rebound. Ed says, it's just a chicken. Lucy says, yeah, and that was just a song. Maybe some other time. See, Lucy knows the song Ed wrote is about Sophie, which means he too is on the rebound. Ed and Sophie, Ed and Mona, Ed and Lucy, what a country! Felicia enters to announce she's just become the first woman executive at Columbia, which means she is now Ed's boss. Hashtag girl boss. Felicia doesn't like how Ed uses the studio to record his demo tapes. She wants Ed to focus on his job. Not unreasonable. Felicia says, wake up, Broadway's dead. Bob Dylan just went platinum. The times, they are a-changin', and I'm a-changin' with them. You boy. I'm quitting the workshop. I'm gonna be the first woman who owns her own label. Ed interrupts to say, and I'm going to be the first person in the workshop who writes a Broadway musical. And Felicia responds by saying, they're dinosaurs. Hugh boy. This goes on for pages and pages. It's so dreary. I would say a good 90% of the book involves people bickering, disagreeing, talking over or ignoring each other. Blah. Ed indulges in a fantasy that involves Mona and Lucy dressed in white. They dance in a wash of colors inspired by Paul Gauguin. You boy! Lehman approaches Ed with an opportunity. John and I am Chang Gilgood is directing Debbie Reynolds in a revival of the 1919 Broadway smash Irene. Most of the songs are being thrown out, which means Gilgood needs a lyricist. Ed is annoyed. Just lyrics? No music? Then again, this could be the start of something big. Yeah, sure, why not? Our hero could give old Johnny Gilgood all sorts of tips. Really show him how a musical should be done. Yeah, that's the ticket. Act 1, Scene 8, Outside the O'Keefe Center, Toronto, 1971. Gilgood fires Ed for being an insufferable twat who compulsively criticizes everyone and everything around him. I am Chang, and you are fired. Ed is devastated. The sinister doctor from Hillside appears out of thin air, all too ready to take our hero back to the hospital. Zap! Zap! Sophie arrives to comfort Ed. Quote, there will be other shows. You're going to be fine, Eddie, I promise. Quote, as the curtain falls, we hear a faint melody from a chorus line. Da, 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 da. Oh, wait. I forgot to mention that all of the students from Ed's workshop flew to Canada so they could watch this revival of, of Irene. <laughs> that never happened, right? No, no, not, no, 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 right? No. Act 2, Scene 1. The Schubert Theater, 1988, as well as Manhattan, 1973. We cut between the two. Yeah, what's happening in this scene anyway? Well, a lot 
and nothing at all, really. More people speak at Ed's memorial. We take another journey to the past, where Ed has chosen to leave his job at Columbia and take up tap dancing. He's also sleeping with a lot of different women. Positively ribald stuff. Lehman and the workshop students host a birthday party for our hero, where he declares Barbara Streisand is recording one of his songs. But then, moments later, we discover the song has been cut from the album. Oh, when a when will the people hear Ed's music, his music, and his lyrics? Tis God above, we ask. In the wake of this latest setback, Ed decides to pay Sophie a visit. Act 2, Scene 2, Sophie's Laboratory, 1973. To quote the stage directions, quote, Sophie is looking through a microscope as Ed enters, quote, Hugh boy, and I can't really explain why that's a Hugh boy moment for me, but I don't know, something about making an actor look through a microscope is lame. You're in a lab. You're a scientist doing science things. Here, look through this microscope. Ah. Sophie orders Ed to stop smoking. Ed declares his love for Sophie. Sophie rejects Ed. It would never work. Besides, she's already seeing the suave and confident, quote-unquote, Jean-Claude. Ed clutches his heart and continues to bemoan his sorry lot. He's not clutching his heart because he's a drama queen. Even though he is a drama queen, his heart is just quite literally a wreck. Act 2, Scene 3, Central Park, 1973. Ed stumbles through the park, a maniac covered in flop sweat. He's basically knocking at Death's door, but hey, who's that? It's Lucy from the work from the workshop. You remember Lucy, the, the whole roast chicken exchange I quoted earlier? Ed needs Lucy's help again. He's meeting with a guy to discuss a new musical, and someone needs to sing his material. Why not Lucy? Lucy has technically retired from acting, but she decides to throw caution to the wind. Act 2, Scene 4, Michael Bennett's Studio, 1973. That's right, the guy is none other than Michael Bennett, asshole extraordinaire. As it turns out, Lucy and Michael know each other, having performed side-by-side side in the Cheetah Rivera musical, Bejor. Michael has already conducted the interviews that will inform a chorus line, and he agrees to let Ed write the lyrics. The lyrics! Only the lyrics! Ed is upset again. He wants to write the music and the lyrics. Michael swears that if Ed agrees to work on a chorus line, the next show they develop will be the gallery musical. Oh, the long gestating gallery musical. Ed agrees against his better judgment. Such problems, am I right? Oh, oh to have the problems Ed Kleban had in 1973. Act 2, Scene 5, The Public Theater, 1974 through 1970. 75. Ed meets his co-writer, Marvin Hamlish. They don't like each other at first. Oh, they bite and scratch like lions on the Serengeti. They do, but guess what? They come together, break bread, and produce a terribly successful Broadway musical. Did you know the original title of a chorus line was Chorus Line? Michael Bennett added the A, so it would appear at the top of the alphabetized show listing. You might ask, who sorts a title that starts with the word A under the A heading? Search me, Michael Bennett was... <laughs> he was a genius and an asshole. Act 2, Scene 6, Manhattan, 1975 through 1985. <laughs> 
We're covering a decade over the course of one scene. Ed accepts the Tony Award for Best Original Score. Hooray! Ed and Lucy become engaged. Hooray! Michael refuses to develop the gallery musical. Oh no! A workshop of gallery at the public theater bombs. Ah! Ed writes songs for Neil Simon, and Neil never calls him back. Not hooray! The opposite of hooray! Lucy does her best to support our hero, but all he cares about is Sophie. Sophie, 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 I gotta find my Sophie. She'll know what to do. Yeah, that's the ticket. And in a conversation with Sophie, Sophie says to Ed, didn't you meet with Richard Rogers, Andrew Lloyd Webber? Ed responds by saying, Andrew Lloyd Webber invited me to his hotel suite. First meeting, he's in his bathrobe and barefoot. Anyway, I refuse to merely write lyrics! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! This is a script written by adults where three exclamation points are used. I'm sorry, but uh, no, I don't like that. Sophie says, well, maybe your music isn't as good as your lyrics. And Ed, according to the stage directions, delivers this next line, icy cold. He says, don't ever talk to me again. Each word is separated by a period. Well, that would seem to spell the end for Ed and Sophie, right? <laughs> wrong, babe. You're dead wrong. We smash cut to Act 2, Scene 7, Sophie's Laboratory, 1985. Ed practically breaks the door down so he can tell Sophie what is on his mind. He says, I'm not speaking to you. You boy. Sophie says, fine, I'm very busy. I'm working with a live culture. And Ed responds by saying, so this is where live culture went when theater died. Hey, oh boy, hey, oh boy. Anyway, Ed went to a doctor who told him he has throat cancer, but he wants a second opinion. Sophie takes a peek at the slides and is like, I mean, yeah, that, that's throat cancer, my man. You've got throat cancer, hashtag throat cancer. You might think this news would allow Ed to put aside his petty grievances and patch things up with Sophie, but you would be wrong, babe. Dead wrong. Ed says, nothing's changed. I'm not talking to you. Okay, then. Fuck off, I guess. Act 2, Scene 8, the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, 1986. With Lehman traveling abroad, Ed has agreed to take over the workshop. Absolutely nothing of importance happens in this scene. Act 2, Scene 9, St. Vincent's Hospital, 1987. Lucy visits Ed in the hospital. He's dying. Ed performs a song for Lucy that is dedicated to her. It's also meant to serve as a finale for the long gestating gallery musical Enough with the gallery musical Christ Above. Ed dies and we return to the memorial service where Lucy is reading our hero's will. Act 2, Scene 10, in the Schubert Theater, 1988. Ed's unpublished songs are bequeathed to the people he came to care for most. The ghost of Ed and the ghost of Sophie make amends. But, 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 hey, wait a minute! Sophie isn't a ghost at all! Everyone at the memorial can see her. All right, fine. So she's not a ghost. I made a mistake. Sophie is the only one who can see Ed's ghost because they were, you know, so inextricably linked and all that. But wait, maybe everyone can see Ed's ghost because Bobby tosses him a baseball right before the curtain falls. So maybe I... Maybe I don't know what's going on at all. Wouldn't be the first time. Won't be the last. Hey, why does Bobby toss a baseball to Ed? 
I could answer that question, but I grow weary. No more questions. Uh, end of plot summary. The end. For the purposes of this week's episode, I began by reading, of course, the 2000 book by Linda Klein and Lonnie Price. Hilbari is what I say. 2000, 2001. Who cares? Hilbari is what I say. A tedious experience reading this thing, if you couldn't tell. A thousand and one scenes depicting Ed as a neurotic, selfish, whiny cuss who drives everybody nuts. But surely Ed had his good qualities. I'm sure, yes, but you won't find them in this script. I had no ability to keep track of the women in this man's life. It's good, It's a good thing I read it twice. Sophie, Lucy, Mona, Felicia, who cares? Oh no, John Gilgood fired Ed. Now he won't get to write those new lyrics for the 1971 Toronto revival of Irene. These are the stakes. Are you kidding me? That's your act one closer? They say it's easy to criticize, and in this case, yes, it is very easy to criticize. Oh, as a P.S., I, I should have talked about this earlier. There are a lot of jokes, a handful, more, more than necessary, more than zero, about Ed, uh, people presuming Ed is gay and other people correct them. Uh, I, I always thought he was gay. Well, he's not gay, and he wasn't gay. Well, any guy who writes a musical has gotta be gay. No, he wasn't. He was straight. Got it, everybody? Fine, fuck. Fuck, shut up. I also listened to the 2000 original off-Broadway cast album. There is no Broadway cast album because we already had this, so I guess there was no... There was no reason. Why record? You you replaced half of your fucking cast. Why should they get an album seems to be the logic. I listened to that, and I also watched the 2001 Tony Awards performance of Follow Your Star Better and Self-Portrait. It's a little medley. Classic Tony Awards presentation medley. Chris watched this with me, and he physically recoiled when Lonnie Price, the, the star, the co-writer, the director, began to sing better. I don't blame you, babe. I don't blame you. Ed at his own memorial. God, Lucy, what a thought. I thought I'd drop by to hear the people gushing. Cause after you die, they always get you blushing. So I've made a fort and wilder return Give me a good gushy goodbye Cause even inside of an urn I stay light on my feet I stay light on my feet And give them that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da Lucy, wait till you see this picture of Ed I stay light on my feet I stay light on my feet and hit him with shoe bop to wop, shoe bop to wop, shoe bop to wop. Oh my god, I gave him that tie. When Dame Fortune tosses me a curve, I never give away to despair. I hang on with every little nerve, trying to keep my balance as I dangle in the air. But I land right on my feet. I land right on my feet and go with that da 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 Felicia, you and Ed had so much history. I hope we can be friends. Don't you have your own friends? Flatfoot flugees finish up last. Most of them are living on spam. That's why light on my feet is what I am. Wayman, Charlie, 
I'm gonna miss him. Yeah, I'm gonna miss him not talking to me. And give him that da 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 Alicia, heard about your record deal on Entertainment Tonight. Mona, how sweet. Entertainment Tonight is for people too stupid to read people. Light on My Feet is one of those opening numbers that manages to make five minutes feel like ten. And there are so many of these... Uh, dismal numbers, and I, I hate to trot out this criticism, but when you feel the time move this slowly, you have to make note of it. You have to, you have to give that feeling voice. That frustration needs to come out. So here, here we are. It does this. It it manages to stretch out this time by strictly adhering to a simplistic, very repetitive structure for nearly two thirds of that time. Ed Kleban sings, "I stay light on my feet, light on my feet." And then we cut to a member of the company who barfs up a bad line of dialogue. Ed, uh, Ed Kleban sings, I stay light on my feet, light on my feet. And a member of the company barfs up a, a bad line of dialogue, and so on and so forth, until we beg for death. What I find kind of unbearable is how everyone speaks in this breathless, poorly directed musical theater way where no one is actually acting. They're just racing to finish their lines before the clock runs out and the score kicks in. You might have heard, I forget who says this, what character says this, but this is uh, this is my impression of their delivery. I taught them all about 6-8 time, but then I always spend too much time helping friends. It's been holding me back for years. I taught them all about 6-8 time, but then I always spend too much time helping friends. It's what's been holding me back for years. Would you just... <laughs> That's not acting. Again, this is not acting. This is inserting your hand into the machinery and withdrawing it before the gears crush your bones. There's nothing graceful about this. We're just trying to survive. Larry Hawkman, I'm sorry, but the orchestrations on this track are noticeably wimpy. You know I love to talk of the orchestrations, but in this case, I can't. And I can't imagine how that sound... This is the off-Broadway cast album. Again, you're hearing an earlier version of the show, but I can't imagine how that sound would have translated or filled the Ambassador, stage two at New York City Center with its 150 seats. Sure, the Ambassador, which has over a thousand seats, not so much. This is a glass one quarter full scenario, Larry. Speaking of the Ambassador, can we circle back to that moment when Ed is revealed to be sitting in the house and he sings to the person next to him. Number one, unappealing, no thank you. Number two, how did that actually work? Was Lonnie Price in that seat when the house opened? Was the seat reserved for Lonnie? Did he take his seat just before curtain? That sounds more reasonable. Did Lonnie ever try to pretend he wasn't in the show? Ah, me? I'm just an... I'm, 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 I'm a member of the audience. I'm a ticket buyer like you. Did he introduce himself as the co-writer and director of a class act, but keep his star status a secret for the sake of surprise? That's right. I'm in the show. Shoo-bop, doo-wop, shoo-bop, doo-wop. Here I am. And there you go away from me. The fourth wall is a beautiful thing, and we should do everything we can to preserve it. So how you doing? Eddie. I'm scared all the time. Scared of what? I don't know. But writing music, I'm able to feel safe in a way I never have before. Oh, Sophie. Let there be one more beautiful song in the cosmos. Let there be one more perfectly ravishing tune. Let there be words that simply say the way I feel today. Three quarters church, one quarter a saloon. Let there be one huge laugh before it's over, and maybe one high note 
to crack the dawn. Let there be one more beautiful song this lovely evening. And da 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 da. I haven't finished the ending yet. So I want to write songs, the kind in musicals. Do it, Eddie. You think? You at Columbia becoming a Broadway songwriter, me at Bryn Mawr becoming Madame Curie. Bryn Mawr! God, the spelling of that school alone thrills me. Allow me to recreate an exchange from the track you just heard, One More Beautiful Song. Sophie says, you at Columbia becoming a Broadway songwriter, me at Bryn Mawr becoming Madame Curie. And Ed says, Bryn Mawr, God, the spelling of that school alone thrills me. What are we doing? Randy Graff, Lonnie Price, this is acting, Lonnie, you're the director. This is how you directed Randy? This is how you directed yourself? We call this acting? This is Broadway? We call this Broadway? What are we doing? Now, kiddies, a charm song is the southern belle of musicals. It don't have to do a lick of work. It just has to make the audience smile. Charm song, nothing to it. Charm song, you can do it. Take a lesson from the kid, you'll be awfully glad you did. Charm song, blithe and breezy. Charm song, it's so easy. If you want to get ahead, it's a way to knock them dead. They don't really have to laugh out loud. <laughs> Do that charm song, and tomorrow at 10, there'll be a crowd for that charm song. Sell those tickets. Charm song. Sticky wickets melt away. I swear it do no harm <laughs> to turn their heads. Mm, turn on the charm. Class, how would you write a charm song for a musical about Fred Astaire? Gingerly. Oh, oh very good. <laughs> Uh, how would you write a charm song for a musical about the flying Willendas? I'd try it in swing time. Look, you're in Boston with a slow act one. Cut that ballad and the show will run on simply charm song. Short and snappy. Charm song. Keep them happy. Shoot that smile. I swear you can't go wrong. So live and learn. Do a good turn. It always goes. It always goes. It saves most shows. It do it. And when they head for Saudis, whistle and run along, they'll turn and say, what was that chalk made? I wouldn't kid ya. You know, Sophie might have been on to something when she implied, more like bravely admitted, that Ed's music wasn't as good as his lyrics. All I'm saying is a guy like William Finn, for example, has produced several song cycles. That man could reach into his trunk with both eyes closed and yank out gold. But this is what Ed Kleban left behind. Did he or did he not write hundreds of songs that could have been included in this musical? You don't see me writing plays about my college classes is all I'm saying, and that's basically what we get with Charm Song, this whole workshop sequence. Let me tell you about the wacky times we had during our writing workshop. No, please, keep it. Some memories are for you. You don't need to share them with everyone. How would you write a Charm Song for a musical about Fred Astaire? Gingerly. <laughs> I paid hundreds of dollars to see this goddamn show, and you're giving me laffy tap jokes, jokes I could find on a popsicle stick. Why do you hate me, musical?
lover are ten cartons and a trunk And the bicycle you had sent home from England And the shirts your mother mentioned Although some of them had shrunk And some old assorted junk And the best part of my life As your first and only wife And the firm belief that love has gone Broadway cast members Randy Graff and Carolee Carmelo are cooking with gas at the top of Under Separate Cover. What's more, the music is actually finally managing to inspire a marginal thrill or two. But then our old pal Lonnie Price comes along with his reedy voice and spoils the whole affair. At 2 minutes and 20 seconds, the number is far too short. We're missing something, a, a beat, a bridge, a necessary sense of escalation. We're on a journey that has no destination. In the end, Under Separate Cover only succeeds in pointing me toward the musicals of Jason Robert Brown. I'm sorry, Ed. Jason did this better. Were I in Gauguin shoes, what would I have to lose? I would embrace the muse and even thank her. And I would choose whatever Gauguin chose and walk around in only Gauguin's clothes. And I would go wherever Gauguin goes. He was a banker. And as he... Hi, welcome back. Gauguin's shoes is bad. Bad, bad. We are killing time in the worst possible way by indulging in this nonsense. I wasn't convinced the number added value to the show when I read about it in the script, and now, having heard the dumb thing, I am a solid non-believer. I have made the following comment before, but I can absolutely hear the polite applause that follows a number like this, and 
That sound is a bummer of a sound, folks. There are few things an actor hates more than a mealy-mouthed, begrudging social contract applause. And that is all you're ever gonna get with Gauguin's shoes. Why learn it? Why stage it? We could be anywhere else, eating food. Oh, food? Food better than theater? Discuss. Speaking of better. And the Tony for best score goes to Marvin Hamlish and Ed Cleveland, a chorus line. I have lost and I have won. Losing isn't any fun. Rain is fine, but when it's done, sun is better. Way to go, Ed. Thanks, Felicia. See, I told you. I've been poor, I've been rich. Rich is better. Fancy or not a stitch. Which is better? I've been fire, I've been ice. I've been naughty, I've been nice. I've been naughty once or twice. Twice is better. is the song Ed wrote for Barbara Streisand. You know, the song she eventually cut from one of her albums. In the context of a class act, we hear Ed sing the following, quote, I've been fire, I've been ice, I've been naughty, I've been nice, I've been naughty once or twice, twice is better, quote, I should have been more reedy with my delivery. You've... So my question is, you've been fire and ice? How so, Ed? How have you been fire and ice? Have you actually been fire and ice? Or did you simply need a way to get to naughty and nice? Ed, are you listening? Feel free to haunt me, buddy. In this instance, I would welcome it so long as I get answers. Here's another question. Is this really the musical Ed wanted his loved ones to produce after his death? I don't think it is. I don't buy it. I don't think he imagined a bio-musical, especially not one that compares so ill-favorably to Sondheim's company. Hey, there should be a moment when Ed's friends surprise him with a birthday party. Uh, yeah, sure, we could do that, because that will make anyone think of company. Why would they? Why would they? Why would they? All right, listen up, everybody. Now, the title is not going to be Chorus Line. It's going to be A Chorus Line, which will put us first in the ABC listings of Broadway shows. And we just may get there if you kids dance your feet up and don't fuck it up. Places, first preview, five, six, a five, six, seven, eight, one.
graduate student. What? Thanks, Ed. What? So I was wrong. What? My God. Ed, darling, you know, gallery just is not my thing. I'm doing a show about ballroom dancers. You're, what? Ah, forget it. Joe Papp will give me a workshop at the public theater. I stay light on my feet. I stay light on my feet and give them that da-da-da-da-da. So da, da, the gallery da, da, workshop plots. Go schluffy, then write a new show. I will, Layman. Neil Simon asked me to musicalize one of his comedies on spec. I land right on my feet. I land right on my feet and go with that shoo-bop, bop shoo-bop. Hey, your work on the Simon Project was terrific, Ed. I sent Doc Simon five songs. He never even responded. When Dame Fortune tosses me a curve, I never give away to despair. Oh, musical about the BMI workshop? Good idea. I was about to think of it myself. Some wonderful songs, Ed, but the show just doesn't work. I land right on my feet. I land right on my... And go with that... Hey, down. Ed, darling, ballroom was a bust. You want to write a new show together? Your music this time? Gallery? No, no, maybe next year. This one's about free love, orgy. I'll try. No, no, I can't, Michael. Orgies just aren't my thing. I land right on my feet. Uh, I, I land right. Go da 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 da. I always thought we'd write another show together. You know, composer and lyricist, they're like husband and wife. We did get an Oscar nomination for the movie, of course, line. Ed got on a plane to fly out for the awards, but he freaked, made him let him off on the runway. Maybe he wasn't so crazy. We didn't win. The last track from the off-Broadway cast album we'll focus on today is One Slash Better, uh, a reprise of Better, slash I Choose You, slash a reprise of Light on My Feet. You gotta love those really long track titles, right? I've decided a class act is a cruel show. Cruella DeVille would love this show. There's nothing more cruel than reminding your audience they could be watching a chorus line when they're stuck watching a class act. We could be listening to top shelf vocalists who deserve to be on Broadway, and instead we're listening to Lonnie Price. <laughs> Is this an experiment? Is the jigsaw puppet about to ride in on his adorable bicycle? Hello. But a chorus line wasn't on Broadway in 2001, Jonathan. Yeah, correct. Let me rephrase. I would rather watch any production of A Chorus Line than listen to Lonnie Price sing the songs of Ed Kleban. I would rather watch seventh graders perform A Chorus Line Junior, 60 minutes, in, out. I would rather watch that, cheaper. I would rather watch A Chorus Line as interpreted by the cast of Mummenschance. I do find it funny, unintentionally so, when Ed turns down Michael Bennett's Free Love Orgy musical by screaming. Lonnie Price delivers this line as such, No! No! I can't, Michael! Orgies just aren't my thing! <laughs> you, you would think he's being tortured on the rack for all of this hysteria. Calm, I wrote clam. Clam down, pipsqueak! Yeah! You fucking heard me. Clam down. I'm pretty sure that the Free Love Orgy musical is Scandal, by the way. Wikipedia describes Scandal as sexually daring, which seems like a decent clue. A large breadcrumb. Michael Bennett developed the show alongside writers Travis Silverman and Jimmy Webb, but a full production never materialized. All right. Oh, I'm tired of punching this particular bag. A class act ain't for me, but if it's for you... 
Wunderbar. No, no, I can't, Ed. Self-aggrandizing biomusicals with crappy scores and exaggerated performances and stupid-ass books. Oh, they just aren't my thing. Now it's time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Masturbate. Lipshits. Pop. Six. Squish. Ah. Masturbate. Lipshits. And now, the six merry murderesses of the Cook County Jail in their rendition of The Cell Block Tango. We all make mistakes. That's why they put rubbers on pencils. And that's what I did. I made a few Lulus. Let me tell you about the biggest Lulu of them all. I was 56 years old when I married Ernest Orgnine. What can I say? We needed the tax credit. This industry just takes and takes and takes. Ernie said to me, Ethel, baby, if we're going to do this, there's something you got to know about me. I masturbate a lot. I thought he was joking. Ernie was always making jokes. None of them were funny, but I understood them to be jokes. Well, newsflash, Ernie wasn't joking about the masturbating. He never bought me flowers, he never rubbed my feet, and he never took me to a French restaurant. All he did was masturbate, masturbate, masturbate. My God, it was like watching a walrus fiddle with a pair of soggy grapefruits and a frozen green bean. We were married for seven hours before I filed for a divorce. I couldn't take it anymore. Did I kill Ernest Borgnine? No. Did I want to kill him? Most definitely. Did I cheat on my taxes? You bet your ass I did. All right, the coffee. Uh, Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. Short taste swell. Drink it up. Gotta start the new day with a cup. Drink it here. Drink it now. Honey, everyone's brewing up coffee for me and for you. thoughts regarding a class act. You know, not every life story <laughs> needs to be developed into a bio-musical. It's true, most of us are boring, and now we know the co-writer of A Chorus Line was boring. You know, I really do think they should have produced a concert review. What's wrong with a, a song cycle, a review, Lost and Found, The Songs of Ed Kleban. There you go. You could have called it that. Now, in 2001, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was the producers, and the additional nominees that season were The Full Monty and Jane Eyre. We haven't talked about those two shows, so we got two more out of this set of four. Are we changing history today? Did a class act deserve to win the Best Musical Award over the producers? No! <laughs> Sorry. No. Shh. 
Uh, no. If anything, we should remove a class act. I very rarely do this, but let's get a class act out of the nominee set. Oh, and give it to Susical. Aaron's and Flaherty Susical? Why not? That's right. Aaron's and Flaherty, right? Yes, I think so. The, uh, Susical snubbed back in 2001. That seems wrong. I mean, it's not like any of us think of Susical as a classic, but there's a lot more on the plate there, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. They're actually writing a show. They're not writing Inside Baseball the Musical. Okay, I'm gonna rank a class act against all of the other shows we've talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you want to take a look at this ranked list of ours, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, access our link tree. Our link tree is right there in the pinned post. And from there, you'll go to our spreadsheet. Ooh, our lovely Google spreadsheet, the second tab. Go to the second tab. That's where our ranked list is. A class act is going pretty low on this list. You shall be in the 129th slot between The Wedding Singer at 128 and Tootsie at 130. Cursed Neighbors. Uh, that's some, whoo, that's some bad grubby territory. Uh, have fun living in that neighborhood. I do have two pieces of show-related ephemera for you. First up, Barbara Streisand sings better. This is a rare demo of that song, which I assume would have appeared on the album Barbara Streisand and Other Musical Instruments. Maybe? Let's say that I'm right. Here, let's hear it better. Let's hear it. audio, it's, it's so rare that you can barely hear it. <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> oh, next, Debbie Reynolds performs You Made Me Love You from the infamous 70s revival of Irene, which actually did very well on Broadway. I think it ran for over 500 performances. Debbie Reynolds toured it for a very long time. Jane Powell was her replacement, I believe, on Broadway and on the tour. She eventually replaced her again. So, and then Tom Bosley provides an introduction. So let's hear that introduction, followed by a bit of that Debbie magic. You know, the thing I love about a Broadway revival is that the audience always goes in whistling the tunes. Well, that certainly was the case in 1973 when Debbie Reynolds made her Broadway debut in the revival of the 1919 musical comedy, Irene. You know, I remember coming to New York and being thoroughly enchanted 
when Debbie stepped onto the stage and sang, You Made Me Love You. Ladies and gentlemen, Debbie Reynolds. this performance is from the 1973 Jerry Lewis MDA Labor Day Telethon. IMDb lists both Bosley and Reynolds amongst the cast for that telethon. Uh, the math appears to add up is what I'm saying. And if I am right about this, what, why was it strangely difficult to confirm? There's no context in the YouTube upload. I had to do some digging. It was weird. Fun fact, both Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher made their Broadway debuts in this revival of Irene. Debbie played Irene, of course, the titular role, and Carrie played a debutante. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Andy Hardy Sweetheart Does Blackface. Anyone? Everyone? <laughs> Anyone ready? Oh, everyone ready! Then away we go! Stepping off of the musical carousel, I am surveying the landscape. The landscape. Here, let me pick up a newspaper. Ah, it's the year 2011. This was a 2011 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and it ran for 561 performances. Not too shabby. This episode is going to drop on November 1st. Mark your calendars, because we're going to be talking about Sister Act. Yes, Sister Act. It's about a nun. No, no, it's about a woman who pretends to be a nun. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpot to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly Patreon payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. We don't keep any of that money. It all goes to Planned Parenthood. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month via Patreon. One dollar a month patrons get Monday early access to all of these main feed episodes. Everyone else will have to wait until Wednesday. You'll get them on Monday morning, baby. You also get a verbal shout out each and every week. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiande, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, Tracy, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, 
and Mara Soul, thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month via Patreon. Hey, $1 a month patrons also get access to 19 bonus episodes. What are they about? Ah, oh, here's what they're about. The 73rd Annual Tony Awards, a review for, a review of the trailer for the film Cats, yes. The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats. Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration. Hamilton via Disney Plus. Documentary Now, original cast album, co-op. John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. Jingle Jangle, a Christmas journey. Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Marlo the Alligator Boy, a review of the trailer for Steve Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, Annie Live, The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration. You also get season one that's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a special series for which I check in with myself via the songs, the non-musical theater songs, I should say, that make me feel more like myself, and all 16 episodes in M3, the movie musical man, a series for which we watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. It's true. Let's move on to the $3 a month tier where you get everything I've already described plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. All ten episodes in our Wildcats Everywhere series, a series dedicated to the high school musical franchise, and a special one-off all about Julie and the Phantoms. We are producing, oh, it's true, a brand new series. We're right in the middle of it. Well, really, we're kind of wrapping it up. It's a new series known as TV VIP, and it is dedicated to musical television shows. Here's what we've talked about. Schmigadoon, Central Park, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, Up Here, Cop Rock, Little Voice, Rags to Riches, Gallivant, Hull High, Shangri-La Plaza, and Gem. As I said, we're actually kind of wrapping this up. Our totally epic three-part series finale is dedicated to standalone musical episodes of non-musical TV shows. In the first part of our finale, which is now out, we covered the musical episodes of Rocco's Modern Life, Xena, Warrior Princess, Daria, Pepper Ann, and Ally McBeal. And in the second part of our finale, which drops October 25th, we shall shall discuss musical episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Even Stevens, Scrubs, Fringe, and Grey's Anatomy. Ah! Ah! Now, if you go to the $5 a month tier, you'll get everything I've already described. Plus, you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. You also get seasons one and two, 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, all 14 episodes in our Broadway in Chicago review series, and volumes one through five of Shout About It. These are collections, compendiums, if you will, of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 125 episodes of the show. Last but certainly not least is our $10 a month tier where you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed, season one that's 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were snubbed, they were not nominated for Best Musical, and all 12 episodes in our Turn It Off series. That is a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. Makes sense. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. You can stream the show via Spotify, Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. And as I said at the top of this episode, email me if you like at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. 
Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny, who I haven't even mentioned at all in this episode. My God, they're right here with me. Of course, uh, in a virtual sense. They're all the way back in Chicago at the Stage Left Studio. Thank you to them, Alex Green, for our beautiful logo. Thank you. And thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Oh, wait. Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night.